Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Dillard, one of Business Program Assistants, and you are listening to our new podcast, Business Dream. MISNA is a forum for Arab American film, literature, and art based in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find us online at MISNA.org as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In June 2016, Rowie, the Radius of Arab American Writers, and MISNA joined forces for the second time to host the Rowie and MISNA Lit Gathering in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Rowie is a not-for-profit literary organization dedicated to supporting and disseminating creative writing, and scholarly writing by Arab Americans. In their work, Rowie seeks to represent a progressive voice in the American community and a voice for justice in the U.S. and abroad. They seek to promote the building of coalitions and collaborate with others around issues of social justice. In this episode, you'll hear artists Marguerite Dubai, author of The Hookah Girl, and Leila Abdurazah, author of Badawi, discuss their work. Throughout this discussion, the authors reference work that was shown to the audience in the form of a PowerPoint presentation. If you would like to follow along visually with the discussion, please click the Business Dream icon on the right-hand side of misna.org. In the show notes of this episode, you will find a link that will direct you to the PowerPoint, allowing you to view Marguerite and Layla's work as you hear their commentary throughout this episode. If you are listening to this episode via iTunes, you can find the link to this presentation in the show notes. This audio was recorded live on June 17th, 2016 at Open Book. Enjoy the show and thanks for listening. Hi. Um, so I'm Leila Abdelazet. I wrote and illustrated the graphic novel Badawi. Uh, hi, my name is Marguerite Dubai, and I uh, illustrated The Hookah Girl, and I'm currently working on a voyage to Panjikant. So today we're going to be doing a little talk about our own work, just briefly about comics and how we've used them, and then give you a little bit of info about zines and kind of that approach to self-publishing, and especially with like alternative kind of underground zine-making stuff. And then we're actually all together going to work on creating pages for a zine, which are then going to be compiled into an actual zine, which we will distribute tomorrow. So everybody will be able to like contribute a page to a little booklet, a little piece of ephemera from the conference. We'll just start with our presentations, um, and then we'll move into, once we're done with that, we'll move into the zine-making part. So this is the cover of my book. It's a graphic novel, obviously, called Badawi, which is the name of the Palestinian refugee camp where my dad grew up in Lebanon. He grew up there in the 1960s and 70s, and at the time there was a civil war. The book is kind of a coming-of-age story, talking about his experience growing up there during the civil war and what that was like for him. And when I started working on the book, I actually didn't mean to write a whole graphic novel. When I started, I was just doing individual anecdotes that my brother and I had heard growing up over and over again and the kinds of stories that you're almost sick of hearing your parents tell because you're like I get the point stop telling me that story but I was posting them online as like illustrated anecdotes just to kind of give people some insight into the background the history what that's like through personal stories because even though those stories seemed common to me and were common in the Palestinian community I also realized that they were stories that weren't frequently heard outside of that community so earlier today I think someone was talking about writing the story that nobody's telling and it's not that you know those stories are passed around in families but people outside of those groups weren't necessarily hearing those stories and I realized that 
like for people around me to know like this was my dad's experience this is what he went through they're like oh someone i know this isn't just like an abstract like thing that happens over there someone i know their family is impacted by this so that was kind of the thing that made me want to start drawing these stories and putting them online and as i was writing these anecdotes and posting them one by one um, just on a blog and then to my facebook eventually someone from just world books this publisher i don't know if you've heard of them they do mostly stuff about palestine and the middle east reached out and they were like hey would you like to make this project into a graphic novel and so then that's when I started doing a lot more intentional interviews with my dad, a lot more intentional research about the history, and kind of trying, trying to weave together all these individual anecdotes um, into a cohesive narrative and a cohesive visual narrative. Because on their own, those individual anecdotes don't really mean anything. They're just things that happened in somebody's life. They don't like have any deeper meaning than this happened on this day, this is what I was doing. But to weave those together into a narrative that people would be able to understand maybe something larger about the Palestinian refugee issue or something larger about diaspora or something larger about the right of return is what I was kind of trying to create through weaving together all those anecdotes. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the visual strategies I used in the storytelling process because, uh, you know, when you're writing comics and graphic novels, the text is part of what's driving forward the action and what's part of responsible for telling the narrative, but the images are also equally responsible for conveying the narrative and pushing the action forward. Otherwise, it's just like an illustrated story. With a graphic novel, you kind of need to have both equally responsible, equally bearing the weight for moving the story forward, in my opinion. So there are a couple different things I did visually that were very intentional. One of them you can see here. You can also see it on the page back here. And... Uh, in the next page along the border, I used different patterns from Palestinian tatris, different patterns from Palestinian traditional embroidery throughout the book. Part of that came from wanting to resist cultural appropriation that Palestinians are facing, and I did that also by telling stories about different aspects of our culture, so really taking ownership of traditional aspects of our culture, handicrafts and stuff like that, and weaving it into the narrative into the storytelling as like a visual device or as like a piece of visual vocabulary if you're like thinking about what role the images are playing in the storytelling so using those patterns and images as part of the storytelling in various ways kind of again to take ownership over it against the kind of cultural appropriation that's happening where Israelis are saying this part of Palestinian culture is Israeli this food is Israeli food this kofia designed I don't know if any of you saw that there was this Israeli fashion designer who like designed a whole line of clothing out of kofias and was like this is Israeli so that kind of stuff just being like no this is our culture and I'm going to utilize it in new ways to create new visual vocabulary in the work which to me is also thinking about not just how Palestinian culture, if you want to like say Palestinian culture, is something that's stuck in the past, but how we can utilize it in the present and move things forward. And then also one thing I did was a lot of more surreal imagery or abstract imagery, because part of what I was grappling with when I was writing this is the fact that I didn't experience this stuff. I didn't grow up in the camps. I haven't lived through a civil war. I didn't experience the things my father had experienced, and I didn't witness the kinds of violence or experience the kinds of violence that he witnessed. And I wanted to portray that violence in a way that wouldn't water it down or trivialize it, but I also didn't want to... Uh, you know, depictions of violence against people of color and against Arabs, as we know, are really, really normalized in the media. It's like you can turn on the TV and see gruesome images of people who have been slaughtered on television and the newspaper, 
But you wouldn't ever see that, like, if there's a shooting and it impacts mostly white people or something like that. You're not going to see those bodies on television because it's disrespectful. But they will do that with people of color, with people who are overseas, who are an other. So I also wanted to portray the violence in a way that wouldn't water it down, acknowledge that I hadn't experienced the violence, and also not, um, not be exploitative or, like, try to use those images of violence to, like, you know, replicate that thing that we're used to seeing where violence against people of color is normalized. Um, so that's where I used a lot more silhouettes, a lot more maybe abstract and surreal imagery. There's a story, I don't have the image of it here, but a lot of silhouettes and kind of like taking things out of like an immediate storytelling or a literal telling of that violence and kind of displacing it as a way of acknowledging all those things and navigating all of those issues. And another thing I just want to touch on is that I made a very conscious decision not to ever draw the faces of the oppressor in my work. So just as I was trying not to like, I was trying to be very conscious in my telling of the history, for example, of the kinds of rhetoric I was using. There's a lot of ways that people, even like myself, subconsciously or unconsciously replicate Zionist rhetoric because it's everywhere in the media and we're just used to hearing it. So like a really basic example would be like this number of Palestinians uh, died. Okay, those people didn't just die randomly, they were killed. So that kind of like passive language, you know, takes the blame off of the Israelis. And so just as I was trying to be conscious of the kinds of language I was using in the storytelling, I also wanted to be conscious of the visuals and the images I was using to tell those stories. And I decided that I was never going to draw the face of the oppressor because the story isn't about them. And so often we're faced with a double standard of, you know, when Palestinians tell our stories, we're inherently seen as, like, biased or unable to narrate our own stories, unable to tell our own stories because we're too emotional, we're not rational enough, whatever, whatever. But when Israelis have their side of the story or Zionists have their side of the story out there, that's seen as inherently credible. And so... Palestinians are often faced with having to balance out our stories. But you see works like Mouse, for example. That's a really famous um, two-part graphic novel by Art Spiegelman, which talks about his father, his father's experience surviving Nazi Germany. And he would never be asked to tell the other side of the story, to include the other side. And so part of what I was doing was deciding, you know, this is my father's story. This is about him. It's not about anybody else. I don't have an obligation to tell anybody else's story. There's plenty of spaces where that story is told, whether it's in the media, whether it's in movies like Waltz with Bashir, which I hate, (laughs) whether it's in any of that stuff. And so I'm not going to tell that story. That's for another book. So for that reason, I never drew their faces. This continued into my other work. So this is um, an excerpt from a zine. I created a series of illustrations based on when I was in Palestine. So again, still never drawing um, the face of the oppressor, but kind of trying to think of ways to convey information or to convey an idea succinctly in compact image. So there's one and then another one. And the images can kind of speak for themselves. So again, thinking about the ways that the images can do the storytelling, what can the image communicate without having to use too many words. That's something I try to challenge myself to do all the time. So I mentioned that this is a zine, basically like a short, self-published, printed it out, stapled it together, you know, sell it or give it away, just distribute it to people. The first zine I ever made was a zine that I made in college about the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Zines can be a really powerful tool for um, in organizing an activism, especially to me, and especially comics. I think that comics 
have a particular way of drawing people in um, because the visual aspect of it makes people who might not otherwise be interested in the subject matter engage with it. So we were trying to do a BDS campaign on our campus at DePaul. We were looking for printouts to educate the student body and all of them were just like, awful like tiny text like explaining I was like you know I care about this and I don't even want to read this stuff so I was like what can we do to make this interesting to people or to make them engage with it and so that's why I created this comic zine that kind of explains what BDS is and I had set it up so that it would be easy to print out I put it online easy to print out so that students at whatever campus would be able to print it out and distribute it on their campuses as well. So really thinking about like the way that my work can be utilized or the way that it can be used in like organizing spaces or whatever else and go beyond just simply me being on my soapbox and talking about my opinions and saying like no, okay, how can this be functional? How can this be like useful to people? And then another example, recent example of work that I did that was kind of the same line of thought like how can this work be useful? I recently um, created a short comic about two men from Gaza. Their names are Hisham and Mones. And so what happened was a friend of mine in Arizona reached out to me and was like, hey, there are these two Gazan guys. They're in a prison here in Arizona. They're being held. They're seeking asylum. Can you like create graphics for their campaign? Because at the time, they couldn't get people into the prison to take photos or anything of them. And they had this petition up, and they needed some art. So I was like, yeah, I can create like visuals. And also, if you'd like, uh, I can write a comic about them. So what ended up happening is I went to Arizona. I met with them, um, went to the border, saw where they crossed over, did a bunch of field research like that, and then put together a short comic explaining their situation. The comic was then used, circulated to one, and it was also put on the electronic intifada, number one, to like let people know about their case and know that it existed, and after the comic came out, there was stuff on The Nation, there was like longer articles and think pieces coming up everywhere. That was just kind of trying to like spark people's interest, grab their attention about what was happening, and then also I was selling the zines to raise money for their bond and resettlement fund. So again, like the comic form for me was really useful also because their case tied together a lot of different issues. It tied together like immigration issues, issues with prisons, um, you know, issue with you know, obviously the stuff that's happening in Palestine. And so finding ways to condense all of that in a short comic that can give everybody like a brief explanation of what's happening with all that multifaceted stuff, I think the imagery um, really helped to convey that information in a more succinct way, I guess. It doesn't give all the details, but it's just something to spark people's interest so that they'll find out more. And so that's another way that I was... I'm always trying to think of how my work can be useful and go beyond just like existing to like preach at people so that's another um, few pages from the spread there's like the Palestine wall and the wall at the border there's a lot going on in these images it makes more sense if you read it but then their passports are turning into butterflies and the butterfly is a whole metaphor that starts the, so it's like a lot of stuff and then the walls turning into teeth so again like thinking about how to visually communicate all of this information so these are just some other examples of um, images that I've created for different things that I've worked on. Some of you might be familiar with that image on the t-shirts for the Free Udas Mia campaign and different things. So always, again, thinking about how illustrations can be used in certain contexts to like convey information. And then the last thing I want to say, so this is all of the pages from the graphic novel that I wrote after I had finished drawing it. Um, and I want to show this picture... Um, Mostly just to convey that, like, 
you know, I didn't go to school for, like, illustration. I didn't, like, major in this stuff. I just started doing it. And, like, okay, this is all done on, like, shitty printer paper. And, like, yeah, it helps to, like, now I've, like, learned a lot from, like, doing a whole book on really bad printer paper and, like, why you don't do that. But, like, (laughs) I had started drawing it just as a webcomic that way. And when I got the book deal, half of it was already drawn that way. So I just kept doing it that way because I was, like, why change? Like, half of it's already done. Like, I'm not going to, like, start doing it a different way. Like, I'm just going to keep doing it the way I've been doing it. And so I say all that to say that, like, with zines, with, like, comics, with all this stuff, like, you don't need special training. You don't need special expertise. Like, I would say, like, if you're interested in doing this stuff, like, read graphic novels and, like, read comics and just try it. Just, you know, like, you'll mess up. You'll be, like, you'll show it to your friend, and they'll be, like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. It happens all the time. Like, you just keep working on it. You know, you don't need, like, any special technology. You don't need special equipment. You need, like, a paper and a pen. And, um, you know, that's uh, basically what I wanted to end on. So thank you all. I just want to reinforce that, by the way, that I really believe that Having fancy schmancy paper and pens and stuff, that's really nice, but you really don't need it to create amazing art. And that was something that it took me a while to, to realize that, actually, that I thought in order to be a real artist, you needed to you know, have archival quality paper and the perfect kind of pencils and all that stuff. And you really don't. Like, you just, I mean, on all, all the pens, uh, sorry, on all the um, tables, we got Sharpies, we've got ballpoint pens. That is perfect for making artwork. You know, you don't need all the other stuff. So I just want to reinforce that. So hello. <laughs> My name is Marguerite Dubai. And I am an illustrator and cartoonist. I'm going to just show you some examples of my work. This is just kind of a quick primer. I like starting off on this picture because this is the first drawing that I have. This is the earliest drawing that I have. And I have been drawing comics since I was 12. And these are a bunch of the characters that I made up. And I was really into anthropomorphic anime characters. So, you know, I drew like dragons and unicorn people and phoenix people and things like that. And I actually drew a comic that was like 120 pages long. It's, it's not good <laughs> at all, but I did it. And, and, you know, so, and, you know, I just used the, the crummy photocopy paper and things like that. Like, I just started doing it and doing it, and that was it. So, starting with that. <laughs> so, this is just a quick primer of the, of the, the work that I've done. This is just a short comic I did um, for a Friends Anthology. This is a one-page comic about the moon. Uh, it, it just, I really get into... I don't know how to say it, like pattern-oriented work and really, like, I I just love studying people and mythology and and this kind of thing. And so this, this, I feel like this piece really gets into the heart of what I really love. So I just like showing this piece for that. This piece was actually also published on the Electronic Intifada. It was published, I think it was last year. And it was a 10-page comic a digital comic. It was only digital. And the title is what it, what it is to be Palestinian in the U.S. And all of the panels, are, I have a few on here, so I'll show them to you. But all of them are kind of this giant one splash, you know, one page splash image where I just wrote all over them. And 
I was really kind of venting out a lot of my frustrations about being Palestinian in the U.S. and dealing with just, I don't know, just being disappointed in the media and with people, honestly. Just my frustrations with, you know, being disappointed in people when I would, you know, talk about being Palestinian and having people uh, treat me in some way or another differently when I would tell them that. And so I just, like, kind of poured it out into this comic and they published it, which is amazing. And actually, this is kind of a good point. Here, I'll go to the next thing. This is kind of a good point because while we are talking about ephemera and we're going to be making a zine today and it's going to be something that's photocopied and, and on paper and stuff like that, the digital age makes it so we can make theoretically zines that are easily distributed online. I know so many people who do that. And I don't really think there's a differentiation between you know, the paper zines versus a digital zine or mini comic or anything like that, it still serves the same purpose. It still can be easily distributed. And, um, you know, I've, I have several cartoonist friends who have, you know, they started out drawing comics online, just doing it for free, just doing it for fun. And they've been doing it for years and they got book deals and they're published now. You know, like that's a total possibility. So, you know, that's, that's an avenue too. Um, but here, I'll just go to the next one. See, the phoenix. <laughs> the phoenix again. I, this was a very cathartic piece. Um, if you want to see the whole thing, you can just go to the Electronic Intifada website and just look at my name, and it'll, it'll pop up. But yeah, this was just like a very, very cathartic piece to do. This was a webcomic that I had done for three years, and this really was just, I was doing it every single day, and it really was just any kind of thing that happened to me throughout, I mean, it was just like anything that was on my mind. So, I mean, these two examples are kind of goofy, but I mean, they range, they range the gamut. I mean, it was just like from political to the intellivision <laughs> to just like an example, you know, like a, I ran into some crazy thing on the subway that day or something like that. Um, New York City is a great place for fuel for a kind of comic like this because there's always something going on so um but you know this is another thing that i actually did make a zine out of this um that i just compiled all of these comics that i was publishing online put them you know went to kinko's put them all together in a you know in, in a book form and was selling them at conventions and things like that um but this this kind of thing like people was people were really drawn to i mean people these kind of everyday stories, like I was having people coming up to me just like, oh man, you know, like, <laughs> I know the Intellivision too, that's awesome, you know, so, um, you know, that was a, it was a good fun thing to do, so. So I did draw several years ago the Hookah Girl and Other True Stories. This is an autobiography about Palestinian Americans, and I say it that way because I'm in it, but also my family is in it. It's not just about me. It's, there's other cultural things in it that don't necessarily have to do with my family, but they are true stories and that sort of thing. This comic was not actually published. It was self-published by myself, and I distributed it myself and everything. And it was the way that I had to do it, and I did it that way. And, you know, I'm glad I did. <laughs> I'm glad I did. Here, I'll keep going here. But yeah, the topics, they ranged from 
lighter to more serious topics, the whole book was compiled into these short stories. And for each short story, I changed the style depending on what I was talking about. So this is how I can't eat sunflower seeds properly, like how you pop a seed into your mouth and then like you eat the meat and then you like you spit the actual like outer shell out. Like I could never learn how to do that and it just like really pissed me off. Uh, <laughs> so like I did a story about this and so like I picked this, this kind of lighter, bubblier art for it. And I also played around with how I would tell the story. Like I didn't just necessarily just go into panels and things like this. This one I made look more like a board game, for example. And you know, this is about you know, my tata tra- uh, trespassing into vineyards <laughs> to get fresh grape leaves. We did not have access to grape leaves otherwise. And they were delicious, so I was, <laughs> I was really happy she did that. You know, this, this just felt really appropriate. And like, this, is, this is something else, too. Like, a lot of times, you know, the cool thing about comics is that you have free reign how to tell your story. And that was one of the things that I really fell in love with comics about. It was just like, you can, I mean, panels are really, really effective. I mean, a lot of people use panels for a reason because they're a really great way to tell a story. But if need be, you can play around. You know, you can, there, there are so many ways to do it. Um, so I really, um, uh, you know, a board game just seemed right for the story. So I went that way. And this is one of the more uh, more serious stories. Uh, if any people know Handala Mejiali, uh, yeah, <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm in the right crowd. <laughs> um, so one thing I should say about this book is that I meant it to be kind of like Arab 101. Um, I really meant it as a book for non-Arabs to read and to be familiar with a lot of these things. So I wanted to write the story about who he was and who Handala was and like how important he was to me. Because honestly, these were the first, first comics that I read, like when I was like three, <laughs> like super young, and they freaked me out. Um, so I'm maybe a little older. I can't remember anyway. <laughs> but so I wanted to write the story, just talking about how you know, how influential he was and how amazing these comics were and, and, and um, just how much they affected me. And so, of course, I wanted to emulate that style in this particular comic, which is what I did. Like, I just emulated it as best as I could. Okay, so this is my, my current comic that I'm working on right now. It's historical fiction. It's called The Voyage to Panjikant. So... It, okay, so it takes place in the 7th century. It has to do with Sogdians. And Sogdians are the people who live in modern-day Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. There are people who do not exist anymore. I was really drawn to them as a people. I really love doing research. And they were basically the merchants of the Silk Road, and people a lot of times don't really know about them. They were really, really important. And, you know, they, they, they basically were like the middlemen of, middlemen of the Silk Road. They were so important that in order to actually, if you wanted to be like a serious merchant on the Silk Road, you had to learn Sogdian. Like, it's like they were that important, which is just kind of blows my mind. So I wanted to do this comic as sort of like a comic that's actually entertaining. You know, like not just a dry, like, well, yeah, the Sogdians were this, and, you know, they were a few, you know. But I also wanted to throw in the history in there also so that people might indirectly learn about these people and maybe might go out and learn more if they wanted to. So here's just a couple of the pages. The reason why I was really adamant that it being full color 
is because the art back then was in full color. I mean, like, full color. I mean, it was super colorful work. I mean, if you look at Tang Dynasty Chinese porcelain, it was violently colorful. It was, like, dripping with all these colors and stuff, and I really, really just wanted to evoke that when I was drawing this work and, and coloring it. So it was just like, okay, it has to be in color. I love watercolor. Watercolor works with the dripping of the paint and things like that. The artwork that I chose, the style, is very similar to the Sogdian murals of the time. I really researched Sogdian murals. So you get the idea. <laughs> and there's a couple more. I also really love patterns. So... <laughs> I also researched for two years <laughs> before I started drawing anything. That's just some of the research pages that I did. Here are just a few illustrations just to get an idea of some of the work that I do that's not comic-related specifically. This was a cover illustration for the normal school. Um, so I really love women in hair. <laughs> and uh, I really wanted to get into pseudo-mythology. Like I wanted to make up something that looked like it was an actual mythological thing, but actually it was just something that I had made up completely. So that is a pangolin holding a chalice on the left side, by the way. Because I just, I really love pangolins, so. And these are some of the spot illustrations that were in that issue of the normal school. Similar themes, I just wanted to do like the pseudo, pseudo-mythological theme, so I just, uh, I got to play around. This was an album cover. This album is not out yet. Um, it will be in late 2016. This is by Polly Stein. Get it? Polly Stein. <laughs> so that's a pun. Um, <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah. So he, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I did this for in uh, for an artist, and uh, this will be coming out soon. I'm really excited to actually see it. Um, so we've already talked quite a bit about what a zine is. So this is sort of, but yeah, zine actually is short for magazine. And they were, here, I'll actually go to the next one here. They did start out in the 1930s, and they got, their, their height of popularity did really hit in the 1970s and 80s. They are reaching, they, they have had a resurgence, um, at least in New York. I'm not sure about other places, but there's mm -hmm. this huge resurgence for zines. Mm -hmm. I did actually put a couple of examples of zines on every table so that you all can get a look and feel of just all these different kinds of zines and mini-comics. And so I also just want to say that I'm really loose on the concept of what zines are. I think a zine can be written, drawn, collaged, anything that's sort of in a form that's easily dispensable mm -hmm. to people and cheap. Like that's really, mm -hmm. that's pretty much what I think a zine is. But some of them get really artistic and awesome. Some of them have silkscreen covers. Some of them have really awesome folding techniques on them. There's that ramen one. I think that you're looking, yeah, that one. There's that really cool ramen one that just is really awesome for some reason. I just really like it. So, I mean, it really is no holds barred with zines. Like it, the, the topic can really be anything. It really can. And when like we're talking about zines reaching a great level of popularity in like the 70s and 80s, a lot of that also has to do with like, you know, the rise of like 
punk and DIY culture um, yeah. in the U.S. and um, people kind of wanting outlets to write about topics that were taboo or that were maybe either politically or socially not acceptable and so couldn't get really published in mainstream outlets and so people started getting together with their friends, compiling writings on all kinds of different topics that were like not really supposed to be spoken about necessarily, putting them into zines and distributing them to their friends. And so like even today, like in Chicago at least, there's a lot of alternative bookstores that will carry zines. People can just drop their zines off there, yeah. leave them in like cafes or community centers. So there's a long history with that and like now there's all kinds of like alternative comics and alternative under you know underground press expos and stuff like that where people yep. will go from all over the US to like basically trade and sell their zines with yes. each other so it's a big like DIY culture thing that's today moved a lot from that really political stuff and has become more like I think in a lot of ways it's become less politicized. There's although still, there's yeah, still the undercurrent. There is but, still, but like know. a lot of the political stuff will be more like identity politics or something like that than like outwardly right. political stuff. So but there's a such a so much history of it and it's really still growing today and often people do comics and stuff and that's why also a lot of comics are in black and white or alternative comics anyways, because as she was saying, like, zines being cheap to print. You want to print out a lot of them and distribute them to a wide audience. What's the cheapest way to print stuff in black and white? You don't want to spend a whole bunch of money making color copies of things. So right. that's why a lot of comics are, like, alternative comics are drawn in black and white because people were printing them themselves and wanted to cut down on the printing costs. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we kind of covered that stuff. Just can be, subjects can be anything. Yeah, that's pretty much, <laughs> we pretty much covered that. And you don't have to be, like a lot of people do writing. Some people do collage. Some people do a combination of both. Some people do illustrations and comics. So it can really be whatever you want. Yeah. So we have stuff for collage. It's over on that back table. Maybe we can split it between two and whoever wants to use collage um, yeah, the, can move to those tables. And just because we don't have enough magazines to go on everybody's table. Yeah. You could do just writing, you could do illustration, you could do drawings and writing together. And like we said, you don't have to be a lot of people are like, I can't draw. And it's like the way I see it is like when you're a kid, everybody knows that they can draw, but then you become an adult and you think you're supposed to do it a certain way, so you yeah. stop uh, knowing that you can draw. So everyone can draw. It's just a matter of whether you want to try or not. Yeah. <laughs> so which I which I would totally I would totally agree. <laughs> I mean, there is no right or wrong way to do this. I'm really excited to see what everyone does. I think this is going to be totally amazing. And, you know, like we said, we're going to combine all the pages and we're going to actually make a zine and we're going to give them out tomorrow. Um, so, rock on! You've been listening to Business Stream. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to receive new content coming soon. We also ask that you consider leaving a review or rating us. Your ratings can help us grow our audience and your feedback will help us improve as we move forward. We'd like to thank Daniel Lurvie for capturing this audio and Bao Fee of the Loft Literary Center for his help as well. 
We are immensely grateful to Ali El Abadi for helping to edit this audio and to the project coordinator for the Rawi and Mizna Lit Gathering, Sonia Ali, for helping to make this podcast and the gathering happen. Additionally, we would like to thank Khaldun Saman, the drummer featured in our theme music. If you're interested in learning to play the drum, you can learn from Khaldun himself through Mizna's drumming classes, which resume in September. Find out more about Mizna, our journal, our other programming, and this podcast at Mizna.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Sarah Dillard, Mizna's Dreams producer. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.